This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello and welcome back. This is Daniel Clark here with the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we interview leading wildlife photographers, conservationists, and scientists to learn more about the awe-inspiring species that we share this fascinating planet with. Guests of the podcast have traveled to the edges of the world to photograph, study, and support wildlife in their natural environment, and as you probably can imagine, now have some of the most exciting, scary, crazy, extreme, and beautiful stories that I have ever heard. Today's guest is John Marriott, a Canadian wildlife photographer with a number of amazing books to his name, the most recent being Tall Tales, Long Lenses a fascinating autobiographical account of his most memorable wildlife experiences, showcasing many unforgettable images of animals that have inspired him to become an outspoken conservation advocate. His web series, Exposed with John Marriott, is really cool. Definitely worth watching and subscribing to on YouTube. He's also just an incredibly nice guy, and I really enjoyed this conversation, ranging from spirit bears to ice grizzlies and wolves to the caribou migration and even the reintroduction of black-footed ferrets in Saskatchewan after being absent from Canada's landscape for almost a century. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did, so without further ado, here is my conversation with the one and only John Marriott. So I just want to say thanks for taking the time. I'm super excited to talk to you particularly because if you were to list off my favorite animals that I have like a wild obsession about, it's grizzly bears and wolves which is yeah. kind of <laughs> kind of right <laughs> in your ballpark. So I want to, I, I have so much to ask and I'm really excited to learn about your backstory and how you got involved, but I always like to kick things off asking my most pressing question or the experience I want to learn the most about, and that's spirit bears. So if you don't mind just kind of walking people through one, what a spirit bear is for those who don't know, and also kind of what the process is to actually find these animals and photograph them uh, so spirit bear is a genetically white black bear uh, so it's not an albino it's uh, a black bear that has a double recessive gene so it's kind of similar to redheads in humans but a more oh, okay. rare uh, double recessive gene uh, and they're a white bear that's found in only a very particular part of british columbia nowhere else in the world um so uh pretty uh pretty incredible they're quite rare um there's guesses of anywhere from 100 to 400 exist in the world um, and they live amongst all the regular black bears so you'll sometimes have a black mother with a white cub and a black cub or you'll have a white mother with two black cubs or very very rarely you'll have a white mom with a white cub oh wow and, um, and do you notice different interactions between or do they seem to kind of treat them all the same or do some yeah they just all treat them just like a black bear so it would be exact same exactly the same as uh humans having a, a redhead child and a blonde child, you know, you, there's, there's no difference. Um, <laughs> wow. so, so to the bears, yeah, you don't see any difference in behavior whatsoever. Um, and the thought is that spirit bears uh, genetically um, formed in this isolated population as a means to uh, have an advantage fishing for salmon, because if there's a big black dark shadow up above the salmon river, it's easy for the salmon to see that shadow 
Whereas if it's a blonde, pale, light, white colored, you know, feature up above, they've got more of a chance to sneak up and catch the salmon. Oh my God. Wow. That's a crazy, I never thought of that. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. Oh my God. Yeah. And so like when you go out and you're going to find these, how large is the Great Bear Rainforest and where are you flying into? Are you typically alone? And how do you even go about starting to try and find these bears? Is it pretty well known where they're kind of hanging out? So the, the Great Bear Rainforest itself is a huge swath of coastal islands and uh, and mainland coast on the northwest coast of British Columbia. So it starts about uh, an hour north of Vancouver as the crow flies if you were in a plane, um, half hour to an hour north of, of Vancouver, and extends all the way up to the Alaskan Panhandle. Um, so it's a pretty huge area and there's no roads to it. So the only way to access it is to take a float plane in. So normally what I do is I drive or fly out to Prince Rupert on the BC coast, um, which is a big major port and sort of hub for travel on the coast, and then get in a float plane. And uh, it's about a 45-minute float plane trip uh, to get into one of the areas. And I usually fly into Hartley Bay, or I will go from Kitimat on the mainland and take a boat and go out for it's about a six-hour ride. Oh, wow. So there's a huge barrier to entry. It's not like you're going into Yellowstone or something with 30 cars waiting in line behind you. And not only that, but the the two areas where spirit bears are known to be found in the Great Bear Rainforest are both uh, access is completely controlled by First Nations groups. Um, So they are the ones you have to get a First Nations guide. You have to go at the schedule they set. If they decide you're only going to be in there for three hours, that's what you have to stick with. Um, So generally when I go, I take a, a small group with me. Um, we go hiking up the creeks uh, with our guide, and then we just sit quietly and you wait in one spot uh, for bears to come walking back and forth along the creek, fishing for salmon. Oh, my God. And so do, do they give you that time allotment beforehand, or could you be taking these float planes in? And then they're like, yeah, you got four hours. Good luck. No, generally, you know how long you're going <laughs> you know how many days. So the past five years, I've all of my groups, we've had a week in the Great Bear Rainforest, and we've spent four days walking up these creeks specifically uh, to find spirit bears. And we literally go in at dawn and we come back out at dusk. So they're extremely long days. You just sit there as quietly as possible. And uh, sometimes these bears come walking by you just 10 or 15 feet away. And do you usually have pretty good luck in finding them? Yeah, so far, uh, not necessarily every day, but every trip that I've done there so far, I've, I've found uh, at least a couple of spirit bears. Oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. And, is it a scary experience at all or are you usually pretty comfortable? I mean, I could imagine sitting there with these thousand pound large mammals coming around. I guess there is a lot of food nearby, which might ease the concerns, but I'm sure like my heart would be racing. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, spear bears don't get that big. They don't get as big as grizzly bears. So maximum would be 400, 500 pounds. Um, they are definitely a, a top of the line predator. Uh, particularly in those ecosystems, um, but uh, really no danger felt at any point. Um, they just you know, these bears haven't been hunted. Uh, there's they don't associate humans with being a danger, um, and so you can just go in there and sit quietly on the edge of a creek, and the bears will go about doing their thing and glance over once in a while, and that's about it. There's absolutely uh, never any time where you feel uncomfortable or where there's aggressive encounters. Uh, it's very well managed and, uh, and 
quite an enjoyable experience. I can uh, imagine. I, uh, I, I've heard a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm very vaguely familiar with it, but there is some concern about salmon populations in Canada right now. Is that something that's affecting those spirit bears particularly? At this point, I wouldn't say it has affected them yet, but it's certainly something that's on the radar of everybody out there, um, whether it's people like me leading photo tours or the bear viewing operators or the First Nations people or uh, or just the British Columbia government in general. I mean, this is something that we really have to watch going forward or we're going to see a, a dip in spirit bear populations as well as grizzly bear populations and all sorts of other mammals and marine mammals that rely on this uh, this constant source of food from year to year. And what is the main, is there a, like a main cause of the drop off in the salmon population? Oh, I think there's all sorts of different uh, causes that, but humans would be uh, at the top of the list, um, both climate change and then overfishing our commercial fisheries. Um, The damage that we've done with logging and forest practices uh, through the 21st century, and, and prior to that, even in the 20th century, uh, really caused a lot of damage to salmon streams and salmon rearing streams. And we've been doing a lot of catch up and trying to, to get some of these streams back to being uh, proper salmon rearing streams again. Uh, and then, you know, coupled with this, we've got the overfishing that's been going on. And uh, so kind of a couple of different things hammering at one time. And um, I think they're at a pretty tenuous situation right now with with some of our salmon stocks, particularly uh, sockeye and chinook salmon, and some of the ones that uh, that we like to eat the most. Yeah, because I uh, I went on a a tour to go check out the orca whales up in Port Townsend, and kind of the Puget Sound last year, and they were saying that it's a big concern up there. Is a lot of the the orcas, especially north in Canada, struggling to go to get the salmon that they're typically used to hunting? Yeah, it's I mean. It, you know, to, to give you an idea, I was out looking for uh, orcas this past August uh, up on Vancouver Island, and orcas feed primarily on Chinook salmon um, and, and big Chinook salmon. So what we call kings or tyes, big 30-pound-plus salmon. And oh, wow. They're becoming much more rare out in the wild because, of course, that's what fishermen want to catch the You're most. Right, right. That's also what commercial fisheries want to catch the most, the, the big salmon that, you know, bring the most dollars in and and for the recreational fishermen, you know, that's the big thrill, catching a big king king salmon. So got these competing interests. And uh, and then you throw in all the, the different boat traffic that's going on. And you can see why things like the southern resident orcas that share that Washington State and Vancouver kind of waterways uh, that, you know, they're really struggling. They're down to 80 orcas and, uh, you know, are, are basically a, a species of extreme concern right now, endangered and and really on the decline. Yeah, well, I can imagine an animal of that size needs to take down a lot of those 30-pound salmon. They do, yeah, yeah. I, something, <laughs> this is kind of off on a tangent, but something that I have been reading about but I, I never really fully understood is that it's resident orcas versus what, it, there's two different types that come in, right? It's actually three different types, but two different types that you see regularly uh, off the coast, and that's transients and residents. So the residents eat fish, the transients eat marine mammals. So the transients eat uh, dolphins, seals, sea lions, that kind of thing. Oh, damn. I didn't know that. Whereas the residents just eat fish. Yeah. And do you think that's something where the residents, have they been seen now that the salmon stocks are declining to start changing that behavior? Or that's just No, that? no, that, that's something that they will never, I mean, they're basically completely different orcas that, 
that feed on completely different things. Oh my God. And can you tell a difference looking at them or is it just behavior? Um, initially just from citing them? No, uh, I, I can't. Um, there, there may be some of the researchers that can and so on, but, uh, Generally, as soon as you watch them for any period of time, there's quite distinct behavioral differences um, that you can spot, uh, oh, wow. both in how they feed, how they move, how they breathe, um, the size of the group, um, all sorts of different things that can clue you in. So back back on the spirit bears, because I just jumped off yeah. there for a bit. So yeah. I, I think you mentioned it, how, how many of them are there? Are there left in the wild? Probably somewhere from 100 to about 400 would be about the maximum. Oh, damn. So it's a very small population. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's illegal to hunt them. Um, interestingly, though, you can still hunt black bears in that area um, in the Great Bear Rainforest, which black bears, I mean, that's what a spirit bear is. Um, so black bears can actually carry the gene and you can have two black bears that can mate, that can produce a white cub. Um, so they still allow the black ones to be shot, which... Uh, Quite a few different groups working to to change that right now yeah that seems backwards especially if you don't know <laughs> especially if the white ones typically are the ones that aren't giving birth to um the white no, the white ones still can give birth to, to white ones in fact there is a there is a a, a very high chance that they will oh yeah it's uh, a recessive gene that yeah, was a dumb yeah, thought of exactly mine. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like i remember that from whatever they talked to you about uh yeah in elementary school yeah, if you get a white one mating with a white one it's it can only produce white cubs right yeah. um <laughs> and is the black bear population at large healthy over there i was surprised because yeah, you can't I, hunt grizzlies yeah. in great bear rainforest right you can't now that's right you can't hunt grizzlies anywhere in british columbia now so uh um, but uh, the black bear population, I would say. Oh, is when very did that healthy. change? Because I, I watched um, that, one of your exposed December. episodes on YouTube, and there was like it was like Great Bear Rainforest was the only protected area. Yeah. So now in December, um, just before Christmas, uh, the British Columbia government announced a full ban on hunting that that started April first. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, that's good yeah. news. Can't hunt grizzlies anywhere in BC now. And what was the kind of main reason for that? Not to be the case is it largely just for trophy hunting or were there like concerns about like livestock and um people like uh, largely trophy hunting um there there is a, a a more minor concern on livestock or on bear human conflicts um but that the research has shown that hunting doesn't actually really affect that much um so the the, the hunt itself was primarily based on hunters being able to go out and get a trophy so there was no no meat component to it. Uh, you know, it's a really odd, rare grizzly hunter that would take 20 pounds of sausage or 40 pounds of sausage out. But the vast majority of them, mo- most of the grizzlies I found dead out in the wild would just have heads cut off, paws cut yeah. off, and they were skinned. It literally looked like just a human laying there, uh, very, very similar looking to a, to a human body. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good news that I, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's fantastic news. Great for... Uh, Great for my business, uh, in particular, and, and for bear viewing operations, and and just for bears in general. Uh, really hoping now that the BC government moves ahead and starts creating more protected areas uh, where where humans just can't go in. Period. Let alone hunt. Can't go bear view. Can't do anything. Just leave them for the bears and the wildlife. You know, it's a really interesting thing because I was talking to um, my last podcast guest, and we were discussing how. It's this weird relationship where you want people to experience wildlife because it helps them to care. And it's really 
easy to become disconnected, especially with everybody living in urban worlds. But then what you find is that through ecotourism, a lot of these places where the animals were doing okay are now being stampeded by people. And it's a hard thing like what you're saying, which is ideally you just want it to be wild country and nobody can go in there. But when you do that, the the weird byproduct of that is people feel disconnected to the animals and then all of a sudden it's harder to protect them. Totally true. You've got to have a, a balance between everything. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm a pretty hardcore uh, environmentalist or greenie, whatever you want to call me. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I try to be a realist. You know, I, I grew up in a hunting family. Um, I still think there is uh, very much a place for, for traditional hunting to put food on the table. Um, I think there has to be a balance with things like bear viewing just because it's part of my business. Uh, I think there definitely has to be areas that we set aside where there's no hunting, there's no bear viewing. Maybe even there's no industry uh, where it's just areas set aside strictly for the wildlife. Um, and I think that's really critical moving forward because right now we hardly have any of that in Canada. Uh, actually, hardly any of that in the world um, where there's just pure wilderness just left as is. Um, even our national parks all across the world are just inundated with people now. Uh, and only the very most remote ones up in the Arctic and so on are are the ones that that have few visitors. I mean, you look at a Yellowstone or a Banff, and you know you're getting millions of visitors a year. Even you know even in the backcountry, they're getting thousands of people going in in a year. Um, yeah. so there's really no place for the wildlife to escape. And that's why I was so excited when I heard how hard it was to get into the Great Bear Rainforest because I yes. say <laughs> I went to Yellowstone last year in end of April, early May, which is kind of right before the season's getting started. And talking to folks over there, they say that as soon as June hits, it's it's literally oh, yeah. like a mob scene. And the whole point of going there is to get away from all of that. So it would. But be- at the same time, you know, as as you said, you do have to have that balance. You want to connect people to nature, so we do still have to have the Yellowstones and the Bamps and the you know places that people will flock to and get that first sighting of a bear or a wolf or a bison or whatever it might be. So I, I do think those areas are still critical, and we need to create even more of them. Um, but it, I, I think we just have to have that additional little completely wild area set aside um, as big as we can make them. I mean, obviously it's tough nowadays. Everybody wants to get in and extract our resources, whether it's oil and gas or forestry or even hydropower, but uh, we just got to create a balance between all of that. Um, I've actually heard, um, and I think, I was surprised to hear it, but I heard China's actually doing a really good job on that front, um, contrary to, to what we're doing here in America. But apparently in China, they're starting to create just designated lands that are not profit motivated, that they're setting aside, which seems to be a really cool step forward from a country that typically you're always associating with a lot of the exotic wildlife trade and stuff like that, which is, I mean, it's really cool to hear. It is, yeah. I'd love to see some of that happen in North America. Yeah, we could certainly use it, that's for sure. <laughs> and who knows, maybe I found a good solution. We just let people like you in there who can go in there, take the photos, keep people connected, but kind yeah, of maybe, keep, yeah. keep it yeah. as wild as possible. <laughs> yeah. And do you, uh, have you made it? Well, I know you have because I've seen the polar bear photos, but like, do you, when you get up there too, what's the polar bear population looking like in Canada now? Um, in certain areas, it's doing you know, well, increasing, or at least stable. Um, in other areas, particularly in the southern parts of its range, uh, really in a, a, a very serious decline. 
that we see specifically attributed to to climate change to global warming um, and I, I stay in touch with a few of the polar bear scientists that work on some of those populations and um, basically it's a pretty dire situation going forward right now there you know, we're kind of sitting around hoping that polar bears adapt but we have no idea what's really going to happen and it's pretty uh, frightening when you actually think of the consequences of of uh, you know having polar bears have to move a thousand kilometers north of where they currently are you know kilometer by kilometer so 500 600 miles north of where they currently are um, would be pretty catastrophic in the big big scheme of things if they had to go up to the extreme arctic to survive and that was the only place they could uh, survive long term yeah i saw that um that video paul nicklin filmed this year that i think like kind of woke everybody up that was devastating yeah, yeah, pretty incredible footage. Are there still a lot of indigenous Inuit and uh, people up there as well? I wouldn't say a lot, but there certainly are. There are uh, Inuit communities scattered across uh, the northern Arctic in Canada. Okay, cool. So, Big, biggest communities, though, would be like, the, the biggest is Iqaluit, which is about 8,000 people. And then oh, wow. uh, from there it goes down. So they're all pretty small communities. You know, many of them are just 250 to 500 people. So I want to dial it back a little bit and kind of get into how you got involved in this. Is this something where if, as a kid, you were just always drawn to it and going, or was there kind of like one moment where it just clicked and you were like, okay, this is what I want to do. No, this was definitely as a kid was, uh, I don't, I don't think I ever thought I'd be a wildlife photographer, but my parents thought I'd be a wildlife biologist or a, an artist or something. There's obviously some creative genes flowing in there as well as uh, I've always just been addicted to wildlife. So I used to play with little toy animals as a kid instead of toy cars and right. Hot Wheels like everybody else did. Um, used to go out and set up blinds in the bush and just hide there waiting for animals to come by for no other reason just to, than just to see them. Um, so I didn't, you know, I got my first camera when I was six years old. Uh, oh, wow. My sixth birthday. I went out and snapped photos and actually still have those photo albums while these little black specks. Oh, no way. That must be really cool. Yeah. So, uh, um, then kind of forgot about it for a while through my teens. Uh, and at the age of 21 moved to Banff in the Canadian Rockies, uh, kind of straight North of Montana Mm -hmm. and, um, got, pretty heavily into photography again uh, through a job with Parks Canada. And within a year or two started thinking, well, I wonder if I can do this for a career and started getting really interested then at turning it into that. So I finished university. I kind of you know, got my degree at that point, which was a, a bachelor of science specializing in wildlife management. Okay. Um, and at first I thought I wanted to work with Parks Canada for my career, but as I worked uh, for Banff National Park, uh, and did some of this Parks Canada stuff. I was a naturalist, so I did guided hikes, I did slideshows at campgrounds, things like that, where I was helping educate and connect with the mm-hmm. public. And I started seeing very quickly that through photography, I could not only do that, but I could take it a step further. Um, and particularly nowadays with the advent of social media, um, you know, if I pick the right image and the right message and stuff, sometimes I can reach 100,000 people. It's uh, crazy. Is, it's so awesome. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's uh, a reach that I never imagined I could have. And uh, so, you know, looking back 20 years ago when I first started getting serious about photography, it's been pretty incredible the, the leap forward. I actually, uh, January 1997 was my first sale ever. 
Oh, really? So just just passed my 20 year anniversary. Was it a kind of what was the publication? It was Canadian Geographic magazine. So, wow, that's a pretty yeah, so, big so it's first pretty high up the start. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's reaching, reaching the pinnacle at the start. Yeah. yeah so what was the photo? Office. Do you remember? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's actually on my uh, office wall behind me. You can't oh, see cool. it. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a picture of a grizzly bear family in Kananaskis country, which is a, an area of the Canadian Rockies. And it was them walking across the snow slope heading towards hibernation. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so cool. And did you know when you took that photo that it was a special one? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I, I think early in my career, I had no idea what was a special photo and what wasn't. I just kind of took what in, what interested me and uh, and hoped. Um, and there was a lot of hope going on at the start of my career until I really figured out the business side of it. Right. Nowadays, uh, if I'm out and I, I capture something, I, I might know right away, oh, this is a photo that's going to resonate. Um, but, but even still, sometimes there's photos that surprise me and, you know, I'll throw it online thinking, oh, you know, here's one of the ones for my trip. I'll get to the better ones later and everyone freaks out and goes, oh my gosh, that's the best one right, right there. Right, so. right, right. Well, it's cool because <laughs> oh, now what? you can kind of like crowdsource what's the, the best stuff to be yeah. using as prints and stuff like that. Yeah, totally true. And actually for my, for my latest book, I, I actually let my fans vote on what the cover should be. Um, so I just went through Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and had everybody vote on what their, their sort of five favorites were and then narrowed it all the way down to one. And that became the cover. Oh, yeah. that That's so, Tall Tales, Long Lenses. Yeah, Tall, tall Tales, Long Lenses. Oh, cool. Yeah. So for everybody listening, go buy that book. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Amazon.com. <laughs> and uh, uh, the the kind of prog- progression to becoming full-time at this, when you sold that to Canadian Geographic, did that kind of put you on the map and you're like, I can do this full-time or was it a, like a long, long journey to be able to do that? Because I mean, I think for was, everyone, you probably have the dream job that everybody would love to have. And the, the question is, is how do you get there? Yeah. So I, I had that first sale happen in January, 1997. And then uh, later that, that same year, Canadian Geographic came and used what I mean, images, my images for a cover uh, for the Christmas catalog. And oh, so I, wow. I was just on top of the moon to think, oh my gosh, these two huge sales, this big major publication and had a couple other sales happen that year. And I thought, okay, this is just going to go booming. And so I opened my business, opened a bank account. The very first year I made $717 of gross sales. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, <laughs> it took me, you know, I, I really had no idea what I was doing. I just thought, oh my gosh, it's, I've gone big. Here we go. <laughs> I just thought it was just all going to fall magically into my lap. And of course, that's not how businesses work. So, so I had a, a bit of a learning curve there and had to figure out, uh, you know, how to actually turn it into a viable business. So it took right. me four years before I went full time. Uh, and then that first year that I went full time twice, I had to go to the bank of mom and dad and yeah. get loans to pay my rent. Uh, yeah. I literally didn't even have enough money to put gas in my vehicle, let alone pay my rent or feed myself. Yeah. That's uh nice to have the bank of mom and dad every once in a while to, to back up yeah. with these types of things. So, so yeah. that's an interesting question that I hadn't really thought too, too much about, which is maybe it's changed now that you are significantly more established than you were before. But when you look at creating photos for a Nat Geo or something like that, is that something that they kind of, uh, you pitch before and they give you a certain allocation of money to go do it and get these shots? Or is it something where you bankroll the entire trip and hope that you get some great shots and, and then in turn sell it? Because it sounds like pretty risky if you're doing it 
the latter? I've, I've always chosen to go the latter route. Uh, I've hardly ever done any assignments and that's um, partly by choice and just partly the, the, the route that uh, my career ended up going. Um, I was never one to go out and spend three to six months on a project fully intensively like you need to do for a, for a full-on major photo assignment for uh, National Geographic, for instance. And so what I would go out and do is my own little projects here and there all over the place and build up this huge portfolio so that now any publication can come to me and say, you know, we need this animal doing this in this habitat. And I've pretty well got it all. Oh, wow. uh, and so that's that's the way route that I went for building up my stuff. I Early in my career, I didn't want to focus on any one story or any one thing. I really sort of love everything. So I wanted to be going to the prairies and to the Rockies and to the coast and to the Arctic and to Yellowstone. Right. You know, I wanted to be going everywhere. So I didn't want to commit at any time. And I actually fairly early in my career turned down quite a few photo assignments mm -hmm. uh, because I preferred doing my own thing where I didn't have a direction that I had to go. But it's funny now, as I've kind of come full circle, now I actually do projects as a whole um, that are conservation-based. So I've turned into more of a conservation wildlife photographer rather than just a plain old wildlife photographer. And so I, I spend a lot of time on specific projects now that have a conservation theme that I don't necessarily make very much money at, but I'm, I'm fortunate enough in my career now, I've you know, been established now for 17 full years as a pro. Wow, yeah. So the you know, publications come to me and say, you know, we want a pronghorn with two fawns doing this. And I go, okay, here, and here you go. Here's the yeah. price. And, you know, so it gives me much more time to go do the projects that I want to go do now. And so it's kind of funny. It, you know? Yeah. That is, I mean, it's amazing. And congratulations <laughs> to have that flexibility. I mean, it's a lot of work that goes into that with the, with the conservation work. I, something a balance that I've always struggled to, to find is there's, kind of similarly to what we were talking about before with reserving parks for just wild purposes. You want people to connect with wildlife so that they care about it. But you also do want to like beat people over the head with the fact of like the hard, like doom and gloom of the reality that we're facing. Have you found one angle to be more successful or is it striking a balance? I'm, I'd assume like telling stories through pictures, it's, it's hard to kind of figure out what angle of approach to, to go after to have the most impact. Yeah, I've, I've tried all sorts of different angles and the, honestly, they all work in different ways. So sometimes it's just a pretty picture with a couple of more subtle messages beside it. Uh, in my latest book, Tall Tales, Long Lenses, I did um, most of it's more subtle messaging. So there'll be a, a great story and then just interspersed in there is little messages here and there. Yeah, so they're not really beating you over the head with that. But then sometimes on social media or in other avenues and articles for magazines and stuff, I'll go on full rants. And, right and hammer people over the head with it. And those also seem to work. So some of my most engaging social media posts or, uh, or, or videos from my web series uh, have been ones where I've just gone on crazy rants and, uh, and kind of told it like it is and said, we need to wake up people. Yeah. And I mean, those are the ones that really resonate. Yeah. Well that, yeah, it's, it's cool. Uh, it's cool to see people being receptive to that in the, the web series too. Exposed is really awesome. And everybody should subscribe to it it must've been a change of pace for you to step out from behind the camera and in, in front of the camera. What has that been like? Yeah, it's, it's been a pretty neat process. I mean, I, 
throughout my career, I've had the odd time where uh, TV stations would come and interview me and, and that sort of thing. But I hadn't really been behind the camera, in front of the camera, rather, all that much. I'd always been behind it for the most part. Right. And um, five years ago now, one of my clients that comes on trips with me sometimes um, approached me and he had a little production company based out of Edmonton, Alberta, that does commercials for a large furniture chain across Canada and the U.S., and he said he wanted to start putting something back into conservation. And his idea was to create a, a TV show based around some of my conservation efforts. And so for a couple of years, we pursued a TV idea and got quite far with a couple of different networks, both in Canada and the States. And then in the end, found that the, the networks that were approaching us were, were wanting to create this kind of fake drama around some of my trips and some of my messages. And so yeah, we decided just to branch off and do our own thing. And so his little company has fully funded this web series called Exposed with Johnny Marriott. And we've kind of done everything. We've done adventures. So we've gone up to the Yukon and photographed ice grizzlies in minus 35 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. Um, we've gone uh, and done all sorts of different uh, exposing different conservation issues. So the wolf call in Alberta, the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia, all sorts of different things like that. And then we've also started a little how-to for wildlife photographers. So we've kind of got a, a three-pronged pronged approach that uh, lets people come and watch whatever they want to watch in the web series. And uh, I yeah. think a lot of people watch all of them. So. I, I feel like TV especially when it comes to stuff like this, just doesn't get it when it comes to like, when you look at YouTube and platforms that are absolutely exploding and now Twitch even, which is like live streaming, yeah. everybody cares about just getting the most authentic stuff possible. And yet they still like, yeah. I want to see you out oh. tracking grizzlies, taking photos, just, it'd just be badass. And then instead they want, they want this like weird drama where one of your, your trip people gets upset that they didn't see a grizzly one day or some bullshit. Exactly. That's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny now we kind of come we kind of come full circle again because now we're in uh, we're in talks with TV networks again so we'll see where see where that goes but I think regardless of what happens in that we've we've kind of committed to to doing exposed for at least another year hopefully oh, and yeah yeah we've got a lot of a lot of different stuff planned coming up what the hell is an ice grizzly I've never heard that before so an ice grizzly is uh, up in the northern Yukon uh, above the Arctic Circle. Um, so the Yukon, for anybody who doesn't know, it's right beside Alaska, so way up north in Canada. And uh, there's a, a late-season salmon run that comes up into a, a river that has uh, underground springs that feed it. So the river doesn't freeze, despite the fact that it's minus 35, minus 40 degrees Celsius Fahrenheit. Oh, so wow. it's extremely cold temperatures. So the, these grizzly bears come in, catch these salmon, and then as they come out of the water and, you know, are eating the salmon on the side or drying off, laying on the, the side of these rivers, they get all this snow all over them and this ice forms into ice crystals and they literally have little icicles hanging off of them everywhere. Oh my God. So they're termed ice grizzlies. Yeah. So, That's so Paul cool. Nicklin did a story on it for, for Nat Geo. And, oh, did he? Uh, I, w I went up there for 10 days and yeah, it's sort of the, one of the coolest places you can go as a wildlife photographer. Oh my It's just God. four people at a time. And, it, yeah. and it's free. It sounds like you got to be bumbled up. Oh, yeah. You're wearing full expedition clothing and you got to sit there by the river for four, five, six hours at a time. Oh. So it's, it's not the warmest thing in the world. And I'd imagine <laughs> if it's so cold, it must be kind of like a, a barren expanse. So like you're seeing these grizzlies completely out in the open. No, actually, it's a it's a, a 
quite a northern uh, for, forested portion of. Uh, oh no way! It's quite rare above the Arctic Circle to have trees, but this is a forested portion. Oh, that's um, cool. So there's a little mountain and uh, uh, quite a few trees that are actually quite tall because of these springs in the area that uh, that help them grow. So 40, 50 feet tall. Trees. What other types of wildlife are you seeing out there too? Um, we saw moose, uh, pine martens. Uh, you could see wolves and wolverine, but we didn't actually luck out and see any. And then on the helicopter flight in and out, it's a two-hour helicopter flight to get there. Oh. Um, we saw doll sheep and caribou. Oh, wow. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's and a pretty cool spot. <laughs> what, what is your typical distance from the grizzlies when you're, when you're shooting them? Um, I would say typical on most of my trips would probably be 50 meters or 50 yards. Okay. Wow. That's really yeah. close. That's a lot closer than yeah, I thought. But for the, for the majority of them, um, we're in a boat or in something or other that separates us from the bears. Oh, okay. So very, very rarely are we right there beside a grizzly bear on ground, for instance. Have you um, ever had any scary experiences with a charging incident? No, I've, I've, I'm pretty careful and pretty respectful generally. Um, I haven't had any incidents with any of the big predators um, that would be classified as being dangerous or aggressive. Um, I've had um, uh, probably the most serious thing I ever had is I got charged by a cow elk um, that was protecting a calf that I didn't see. Um, I was photographing a loon out in a wetland and I was wading around to one side and all of a sudden this cow elk just came charging out and Oh my God. Huge animal, over over a thousand pounds. And uh, she chased me out, and I had to wade right out into the pond and had my lens held up above my head. Oh, God. She came hammering the water with her hooves. And so I I waded around and got out the other side of the pond and started running. And she came all the way around and chased me out right up against a tree. And I was on one side of the tree, and she was on the other, just hammering the bark with her hooves. No way. Absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Jeez. Uh, Thankfully, it ended well. She ran off, and I got off to my car. And yeah, that was by far the most adrenaline-inducing moment I've ever had as a wildlife photographer. Oh my god! And how big was this elk? Oh, she was. I mean, she towered over me. Yeah, so, and I'm six foot three. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. It's like uh, you can always take like all the steps that you would need, and I mean, for the amount of photos you have, who've never been charged by a grizzly, shows that you're you're, you're taking care, but for that stuff to still happen, it just shows there is some, uh, there's always an element oh, yeah. of the wild out there. There's been a, a few other heart thumping moments. I, uh, I remember I was waiting at a, a wolf rendezvous site once and, uh, was hunkered down hiding just off of a trail. Uh, didn't want to be right on the trail in case something came walking along it. And sure enough, something came walking along it, but it wasn't a wolf. It was a grizzly. Oh my God. <laughs> so it was only about 10 feet away from me. It just walked right by me. It didn't even see me, but I'm sure it could smell me, but right. uh, it didn't even glance over or anything. And I just caught this movement out of the corner of my eye and glanced over and <laughs> grizzly walking by. And I'm like, Ugh. Oh my God. That'll get you to seize up real quick. That's the heart thumping. Yeah. So when you say like wolf rendezvous spot, how, how much research goes in before you head to these places? Like, how did you know that wolves would be rendezvousing there? Um, just from from years following uh, a particular pack and a family of wolves and um, just sort of deducing it over time, um, figuring out, you know, where they're moving to, where they're moving from, um, where they've been getting prey, where, you know, you kind of eventually are able to, 
if you're knowledgeable enough and skilled enough, able to figure out where their rendezvous sites are and where they'll keep their pups to be safe and where or if there's a spot you can observe it from without disturbing things, which is pretty key. In for the wolves, where were you primarily looking for those? Uh, also in British Columbia, Yukon, or is it all over the place? Uh, all over the place, yeah. Yeah, I've done done wolf stuff in Yellowstone, uh, Alberta, Yukon, and British Columbia. Oh, wow. How are their populations doing? Uh, wolves are a pretty resilient animal. So, they, you know, even though they're very heavily persecuted, uh, particularly up here in Canada, um, yeah, Alberta, for instance, still allows... Uh, people to poison wolves which is just astonishing that that still exists now nowadays um but yeah that's messed wolves up. still there's, there's quite a bit of wilderness area still out there um uh you know it, may, it might have roads through it or some oil and gas or a little bit of forestry and stuff but it's still fairly wild overall and um so wolves are able to to adapt and to uh to deal with that uh so even though they are very heavily hunted and trapped um uh, they're like coyotes in the sense that they're quite a resilient canid and are able to, to withstand a lot of pressure on their populations. Coyotes are amazing. I mean, I was reading, I think it was on Joe yep. Rogan's podcast or something. He was talking to this, the guy who runs the coyote program in Los Angeles and they have like significant populations of coyotes in downtown LA. And yeah. I mean, even I live um, in Silver Lake, which is like just North of downtown Los Angeles. And, I was walking down the street the other day and saw two just like hanging out and they were big, big coyotes too for their size. And you're just like, what are you doing over here? It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, but the wolf, I, the, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, my, my California connection for, uh, for your, your listeners and viewers is I, I went to Berkeley and I remember, uh, walking home from, from school late one night after staying on campus pretty late and, heading back to a little community called El Cerrito. And I mean, right in the middle of basically a full on city and, uh, and there's coyote walking along the street towards me <laughs> on the opposite side. I'm walking down one sidewalk. There's a coyote walking up the other sidewalks. Yeah. I remember yeah. I grew up, um, caddying on uh, Woods Hole in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Yeah. And we had this driving range that was like just abutting a big kind of wildlife reserve. And sure enough, there was a bunch of coyote pups just hanging out there because one of the guys on the grounds crew used to feed them. And sure enough, they just oh, yeah. got closer and closer to us. And we probably lost a week and a half to two weeks of work because we were just staring at these little coyote pups <laughs> the whole time. But for the wolf thing, one of the craziest stories I've ever heard was the kind of the rebalancing of the Yellowstone ecosystem when wolves were yeah. reintroduced. I mean, that's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, we sort of experienced it here. So I live uh, in Canmore, Alberta, which is right on the edge of Banff National Park in the Canadian Rockies. So we're about four hours north of Glacier National Park in Montana. And wolves were completely eradicated from here in the 1950s and 1960s uh, when there was a big rabies scare. And so they didn't recolonize our area and our national parks until mid-1970s into the mid-1980s. And so we also saw that kind of rebalancing that you guys saw in Yellowstone uh, just in the last 20 years. So um, it, it's pretty remarkable the difference that they do make in a habitat in uh, in not only controlling prey, but just the, the cascade all the way down through the ecosystem. Yeah, and I'll, I'll explain it for people who don't know, but please interrupt because I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. But in Yellowstone particularly, wolves had not been around for uh, several decades at least. 
Um, I don't know exactly what it was, but what had happened was the elk and the deer were spending more time just kind of hanging out instead of like on the move because they were worried about the predators, which led them to graze more, which led to more erosion of the, uh, the rivers. And that kind of just had this crazy downstream effect. Is that like a pretty fair? Absolutely. It's, it's a wild story. All sorts of things changed because wolves weren't around for 40, 50, 60 years or whatever it was there in the Yellowstone area. And, uh, yeah, so it led to erosion in stream banks. It led to changes in willow thickets. Uh, uh, composition of the forest was completely different. They now see 20 years later that the forest composition is changing. Willows, all that sort of stuff. Everything's just changing because wolves have come back and have put that fear back onto the landscape of those. Uh, you know, the prey is now spending a lot less time down in the valley bottoms. and So it's, it's just going back to the way that it's supposed to be. Um, when you when you have a top down predator like a wolf uh, on there in the in the environment, and and going back into Northern California, apparently wolves are back in California for the first time in a hundred yes. years too. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. Have you uh, have you do you know anything about that pack specifically, or what, what impacts do you think that those guys might have? Well, I think they're probably going to have very, very little impact at this point. Um, you know, until. Until there's a decent sized population, 40, 50 or more, you're really not going to see much of an impact at all. Um, but I, I'm really hoping that they, you know, start to colonize more of the state and uh, start to move further down. It's exciting seeing wolves moving into Washington State and into Oregon and, you know, I mean, even even Colorado. And, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that it keeps going. And uh, and maybe eventually we also start to, to look at putting some grizzly bears back into some of these spots. I mean, it's so ironic that, you know, when I lived in California, that the state flag has a grizzly bear on it. And that California, probably according to historical records, had one of the, the densest grizzly bear populations in the world. And, you know, it's been 100 years now since the last grizzly bear there. So, And what were we the grizzlies like? They were like coastal grizzlies, right? Like kind of a different. Yeah, different... well, I think all over, all over uh, uh, California, but particularly that kind of oak shrub habitat is really prime grizzly habitat back in the day and, and would still be. Um, yeah, I think they, they would thrive everywhere from the Sierras right to the coastal habitats. Uh, although I think there's only a few areas in California where it'd be suitable to reintroduce them where there's enough wilderness still still intact. Have you ever heard of a guy, um, I'm pretty sure it's Adam Greentree. He was on uh, a podcast the other day. He's, he's a large hunter. Um, but he's also just kind of gets into these wild, wild areas. And he, I'm, I might have the person wrong, but if, forgive me if I do, I'll correct it if I did. But he swears on his life that grizzlies are back in Colorado and he knows where they are, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, there's been a few people that have, that have hinted that they thought grizzlies were back in Colorado. Um, I haven't seen any definitive proof yet, but uh, I mean, there certainly are some big tracks of wilderness there that uh, is possible. Yeah, well, he said he's going to go and take the photos this year. So who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll have a big news story and you heard it here first. Um, pretty exciting, yeah. So I also heard um, you mentioned in your bio on your website that uh, you've worked with wildlife photographers that you've admired for a long time, but your personal f- um, favorite that you aspired to be like growing up, uh, you never got to meet. Can you talk a little bit about that story and who he was and the work that he stood for? Yeah, so he was a Japanese photographer uh, called Michio Hoshino. Um, and I remember finding his books in the early 1990s and just being wowed by uh, 
um, his photos kind of came across as, as he was just a bystander observing what was going on in nature and the, you know, grizzly bear family in this beautiful big landscape. Um, very rarely had animals looking at him. Um, it was often just animals being a part of the landscape or being part of the habitat or being part of the scene. Um, and uh, that really resonated with me, although interesting that my own, own personal style, I love to have that animal eye contact. Um, so I veered off from his a little that way, but I, I had always really appreciated what he did conservation wise and the fact he would go and he would immerse himself into a, a situation, he'd go out and camp out in bear territory and so on. And I did a lot of that early in my career, go out back into the backcountry and hiking and camping and, uh, and spending a lot of time out there. And so I really admired that about him. And then unfortunately in 1997, uh, just as I was kind of becoming a full-time pro, um, he was killed by a grizzly bear uh, in oh. Camp Chaka, Russia. Uh, and it was a, a habituated garbage bear that they knew was a dangerous bear. Oh, and no. it's just very unfortunate that, you know, he didn't heed the, the calls and the warnings from other people that he should not sleep outside. And, uh, and it just ended up being a very tragic incident. Oh yeah. That's awful. Especially for somebody who has been able to be kind of one with nature for that long and, you know, is doing everything the right way. Yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, it was nothing that it wasn't, you know, because he got too close to a bear or anything like that. It was really just a freak accident that, you know, he, he really should have paid more attention to people saying you can't camp outside here because of this bear. And what was his name again, if people wanted to look up his work? Michio Hoshino, so M-I-C-H-I-O, and then Hoshino is H-O-S-H-I-N-O. Okay, He cool. did, did some wonderful work up in Denali in Alaska. So bears and wolves are obviously big mammals that just exciting to find and go after and see in the wild. What, what outside of that would you say is like kind of an odd surprise of, of an animal that you've really enjoyed either the journey of photographing or their specific behavior. There's just something about it. Um, uh, one that stands out to me immediately is uh, black footed ferrets. Um, I remember back in, I think it was 2009 or 2010 Canada's the, the prairie portion of Canada. We just have sort of a little bit of the great American prairies that goes up into Canada just tips a little bit into uh, southeastern Alberta and southwestern Saskatchewan. And really the rest of Canada, there's no prairies anywhere and very little grasslands area. So we used to have black-footed ferrets and we do have black-tailed prairie dogs. And we've got bison and things in this little oh, portion. Wow. And so Canada decided to reintroduce black-footed ferrets into our black-tailed prairie dog towns. And so I knew about this and I went and uh, the following year went in and tried to become the first photographer to capture photographs of them in the daylight. And uh, after about a week of no luck, I had just one remarkable morning, I was driving along right at dawn, saw this little creature running around out there, got the binoculars out and went, oh my gosh, that must be one. I mean, it didn't even really know what they looked like. Right, right. So, you know, I kind of snuck out there and this little weasel creature, you know, they're just like a pet ferret, kind of, you know, very similar size and similar looking and for three hours this little ferret just went hunting all around me and was digging up prairie dogs and oh my god just was just more or less oblivious to me it would look at me <laughs> once in a while but it's just an absolutely incredible experience and was, was easily one of the top experiences of my life as a, a wildlife photographer and when you were kind of scurrying around looking to catch it was were you 
camouflage in some way. I saw this photo of I, you looked it looked like you were wearing a tent and all you could see was like a camera <laughs> poking out of it. Yeah, I, I wear a lot of camo um and that I would have been wearing camo there but it would I mean it saw me coming for it's it's the prairie. It's you know flat and as soon as you're moving out there even if you're wearing full camo the animals can see you. Um so it knew I was coming and I just approached very, very slowly, hoping that it wasn't going to disappear or run away or anything. And, and it didn't, it just very quickly accepted me and went about its business. And so, How has that reintroduction gone? Um, it went really well for the first couple of years. And then the bubonic plague uh, came into the prairie dog towns and ended up wiping out all the reintroduced ferrets. So um, the latest that I've heard is they're, they're still contemplating whether they're going to reintroduce them again. Uh, trying to figure out what they're going to do next. Like the the Middle Ages bubonic plague. Yes. Jeez, yes. that's awful. How does how does something yeah. like that get into the environment? Not sure how it spreads exactly, but uh, once it gets into the prairie dog towns, it spreads very rapidly, uh, just being carried by the by the dogs from from town to town. So I, th- I believe it, it gets carried on fleas. Oh, jeez, that's awful. What do you see as the kind of the the major conservation issues that are affecting Canada right now? Like obviously the Grizzlies is a big step in the right direction. Are there any other causes that you're actively promoting or uh, trying to lobby for? I'd say there's sort of three right now. One more of a, it's a broader global issue and that's climate change as a, as a whole. Right. And it's one that uh, because there is a lot of attention on it, I haven't necessarily spent a, a ton of time so far on, um, because there is already, you know, high profile Nat Geo guys like Paul Nicklin doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a couple of things in the works that, uh, may end up with me spending quite a bit of time in the Arctic, uh, for a couple special projects, but I can't really talk about them yet. Okay. No, that's fair. <laughs> they're they're in, in negotiations <laughs> and stuff with some of these t- TV networks. Um, uh, the two closer to home that, uh, really, uh, three actually really projects that I'm really concentrating on. One is caribou conservation that I'm going to be putting a lot of effort into in the next year or two. We've got uh, two types of caribou in North America. We have the woodland caribou or the boreal caribou. uh, And then we have the barren ground caribou, which is the one that people see on TV in the big migrations across Alaska and Yukon. So the woodland caribou is much smaller herds and they basically live in, um, there's actually a herd that dips down into Idaho a very small herd, but they're the one one of the most critically endangered ones. They're down to twelve individuals, um, so they share a border between Idaho and BC. Twelve. And all the rest of them are um, northern Alberta, northern British Columbia, northern Saskatchewan, northern Manitoba, and almost every single population is in trouble in one way or another um, from from primarily from habitat loss, uh, from logging, oil and gas. Uh, putting roads in, and these these animals are extremely sensitive uh, to any disturbance from humans. And so, um, this is something that right now, the, the the flip side of this, right now, the governments are doing these huge wolf calls to try and stop the wolves from predating on the caribou. But it's like putting a bandaid on a gaping wound, right? Because that's not actually the cause. That's not what what's causing the gaping wound. The gaping wound is being caused by this sort of rampant resource extraction just going on all over the place without a plan in place. Um, so that's one of my things is to, to help both wolves and caribou is to, to move forward and get much more of a land use plan going on um, throughout these portions of Canada where caribou exist. Well, the annoying uh, thing, too, is when you don't go after the 
the actual source of the problem. Like if everybody knows it's a human involved conflict and then you're like, oh, well, we'll take care of the wolves and that should help out that situation. You just continue to create these downstream effects and nothing. You do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And as we already know, wolves are extremely resilient and the research so far is showing that it's having absolutely no effect. Right. It's not increasing caribou herds. So is there a, is there any concern with like your average hunter going out there and mistaking one of those caribou for like an elk or something like that? Or is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, they have had poaching issues just just last fall. There was a poaching issue where a couple of these caribou were found dead on the side of a logging road. And, you know, when you're dealing with a population of 80 or 90 animals, that's you know, an absolutely critical thing yeah, to, to lose two like that for unnecessary reasons. Um, oh, so they and they were left there as if like somebody shot them and was like, oh, shit, I didn't know what I shot and put it there. Either that or just having some fun. And, but yeah, one of the two. Yeah. That's awful. But the other species, the the mass migration caribou, they're doing okay. Uh, some of them are, some of them aren't, um, and that's also something right now that uh, there's there's a lot of research and hopefully a lot more going to be going into it to figure out. So the 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 big herd called the porcupine caribou herd, which uh, uses the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska and then migrates across into the Yukon and then back and forth each year, a couple times each year. Um, they uh that that herd seems to be doing quite well overall some of the other herds in other parts of canada and in the, in the northern arctic uh, are not doing very well in fact some of them are in very dire situations and so they're trying to figure out why and what can be done to change it if, find out if it's just a natural uh decline and then there's going to be a big rebound or if this is something that's actually permanent and right you know, so what do we do to change it can you talk a little bit about, I actually think I saw it on planet earth Two, which was like the caribou migration, actually like how intense like, it's yeah. something like they cover the most ground of any land mammal in the world. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's yeah, that's pretty, I've, I've, I don't have a ton of experience. Most of my experience with uh, the caribou migration is with that porcupine caribou herd mm-hmm. uh, up in the Yukon off of, uh, so we've got, uh, there's two highways in the, in the uh, Northern Canada and the U S that, that go to the Arctic Ocean. One's the, the Dalton Highway in Alaska, and the other one's the Dempster Highway in the Yukon. And I've gone up the Dempster a couple times in the fall to try and intercept the migration. And so have seen um, kind of the front uh, tip of the migration. So a couple hundred caribou bulls at a time in a big group crossing the highway. And it's pretty amazing just to see. So I can't even imagine seeing, you know, the tens of thousands at a time, which comes later in the migration. Oh, my God. So, so far, wild. I haven't experienced that, but it's. Oh, so my bucket list. They have to cross a road. It's but I mean, yeah, it's, it's is it yeah. particularly busy? Is that like a concern or not, not particularly busy? It is heavily hunted, um, but it's sustenance hunting. It's uh, Gwich'in and Inuit people, First Nations people um, hunting to put food on the table. Um, and it's quite well managed. Um, so that herd itself, as I said, seems to be doing quite well. Mm-hmm. It seems to be on the increase. Um, it's other herds in other parts of Canada that are that are in uh, a little more dire consequence, a little more dire situation. What is your perspective in general um, on hunting? Being kind of a conservationist, greeny type person, like it's something that's always kind of struck me as like I know I could never do it, but I've started yeah. listening to more podcasts where people who uh, are doing it. I, if you're focusing on healthy populations there is an argument that it's it those people are appreciating the earth more than folks who are just kind of beef cattle farming what do you think in general like where where do you stand on hunting of animals 
Yeah, I'm I'm fine with hunting to put food on the table. Like I said, my, my I grew up in a hunting family. My dad hunted, my uncle hunted. Uh, got quite a few friends that that still hunt, uh, do some bow hunting around uh, my community here. Um, I personally will probably never hunt. I've never had that desire to to kill an animal, um, but I do see the, the health benefits of it. I see the connection to nature. Um, I also see the love of nature and the, the desire to get habitat protected. And I think there's a lot in common between uh, a majority of hunters and a majority of conservationists that if we come together, there's a lot more that can be accomplished. Where the problem arises is from both sides, we have the extremists. So we've got the trophy hunters, the people that are just out there killing for fun, that are shooting elephants, that are right. killing grizzly bears and cutting their head off to throw on a wall. Those are the ones that don't do any good. Just as on the conservation side of it, it doesn't do any good to be anti-everything and you know completely against all resource extraction and against all hunting and against all you know anything that harms an animal anywhere. Right. It, I mean, it's a certainly a stance, and everybody's entitled to their opinion. But it's very difficult to get anything done and to get compromises when you've got those two extremes. So I think it's in the middle, and the people that you're talking about, you know, hunters and conservationists. Um, they can work together. I mean, hunt, many hunters consider themselves to be conservationists and say that, you know, they do a tremendous amount for conservation. And I agree with that. And I think there's also lots of people like me that aren't hunters that do a tremendous amount for conservation. And I think put the two together and, uh, you know, you've just doubled your efforts. And, and I think there's a lot more we can get done towards setting aside wilderness. Yeah. And just understanding like your perspective may not be mine, but we kind of have right. some, some, crossover and you're right and unfortunately i mean i think this is a larger problem with our world in general right now but we tend to only focus on the polarized uh people out there like i just watched that i don't know if you've seen the documentary trophy um but it's all about the the trophy hunt in africa and like saying that that's helping conservation is a bunch of bullshit in my my opinion i mean yeah i i agree totally with um and I, I, i guess unfortunately what bothers me about it is then i listen to I keep talking about Joe Rogan, but I just listen to his podcast all the time. And he is like an active, like he goes to Lanai in Hawaii and hunts introduced access deer, which are running rampant in in the areas. But he loves being out there. He loves talking about it and uh, cares about healthy populations and stuff. And like, I wouldn't do it, but at least I I get that versus a guy who's using that argument to go kill a lion by throwing a carcass there and just sitting and shooting it. Yeah. I I agree. I think, um, Maybe there will be a time in the future when we've created some other food source that means we don't have to hunt, we don't have to ranch cattle, and we don't have to, I mean, but, but right now that doesn't exist. So, you know, as long as we're all eating, um, and I, you know, I would, I've, I've tried to go vegetarian, I've tried to go vegan, uh, I just can't do either. So for myself, yeah. I kind of, you know, it's kind of hypocritical for me that to then say, um, sorry, I'm totally anti-hunting. Know, particularly since my family grew up doing it and I, I can see that you know how, who am I to say that someone shouldn't be able to go out and hunt a grouse or a deer and put that healthy organic meat on their table yeah uh, when I'm when I'm out there eating steak or chicken yeah I'm struggling with it too especially I mean so much of the work that I'm trying to do is focused around how bad things like the beef and cattle industry in particular is and like, I'm like, you got to stop doing this, but it's hard. I mean, it's ingrained. I, I've been eating it my entire life, but I don't know if you've tried the incredible burger. I think Richard Branson. No, be I've, been, it. I've been reading about it. I oh my God. It's literally, it's, it's mind blowing. 
Like, is it really? It's the first time I ate something and I was like, there's a chance I could become vegan. If, if this is vegan, <laughs> this tastes exactly yeah. like meat. It chars exactly like meat. Um, wow. yeah. So I, there, there's hope in the world, I think for that yeah. perspective. Cause I, mean, I, I, mean, I do like we, you know, I buy fully free range chickens that I know the farm where they come from and things like that. So right. we, you know, we try to try to keep the, I stay away from slaughterhouse beef and things like that. Um, but, uh, still, of course, there's always an impact. I mean, it, it's an impact in everything that I do. I mean, I drive a forerunner, right, um, right. you know, so, so how can I come out completely against the oil and gas industry? Certainly I want there to be regulations and I want there to be, you know, much more stringent, uh, land use plans in place so that caribou and wolves and grizzly bears and everything have these places to live. But you got to also have a bit of, of reason, I think in, uh, in your, your beliefs and your logic and stuff. So yeah. I was watching, uh, the latest episode of Silicon Valley on HBO this oh, yeah. uh, on Sunday. And one of the guys got a Tesla and then his kind of like antagonist guy was like, Oh, it's cool that you got a Tesla, but do you know that 90% or whatever of electricity comes from non-clean sources? So you're not really doing anything, yeah. which yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, my takeaway from that is similar to yours in the forerunners. You can only do so much. It's a step in the right direction to drive a Tesla or an electric vehicle. But I mean, yeah. And then, then you can take the next step and start worrying about where the electricity comes from, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, in Canada, I would love to love to be driving an electric vehicle that I can sleep in and camp in and all this sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, to get your people down in L.A., they're a, a, a visual. Um, so the nearest city to where I live is an hour away. Oh, wow. so six, 60 miles just to drive to the nearest city. And if I want to drive to the, the next major city beyond that, uh, it's almost 300 miles away. Oh my God. So, so a Tesla would, I mean, it just, you know, as much as, much as you'd love to see more of them in Canada, they just are spaces between cities and towns is so far that uh, just, it's not really feasible. Yeah. Even I had to drive a Tesla <laughs> for an old job I had from Los Angeles to Monterey, which is like halfway up the coast. And we had to stop once or twice to, to charge it up. Not that I'm dissing yeah. Tesla. I mean, I'm sure I would love that. No, no. I, th- I mean, I think yeah. we're we're probably pretty close to having vehicles that'll go 500 miles on a charge, which oh, for then sure. changes the game completely. So you had mentioned three. So it was climate change, the caribou, and then what was the third conservation? Yeah. The, so the other one, uh, yeah, kind of two more. So the, the, the wolves, which kind of ties into the caribou. So the mm-hmm. whole wolf call where they're poisoning wolves. Right now, um, wolves are still more or less treated as vermin in Canada. Um, because there's still a lot of them, um, and there's, you know, regardless of how heavily we hunt them or trap them, they seem to be resilient enough to have enough areas where they can get away from people and, and rebound. Right. And so there's some really archaic practices that still go on. And, um, you know, I've, a lot of the packs that I monitor regularly inside the national parks step out and literally a foot outside will be a full you know, a, a hunter or a trapper, sorry, will have set out a couple of carcasses and they will have put snares, neck snares, these thin little things that look like a coat hanger that's been s- s- turned into a circle. And the wolf is just, just supposed to walk through them and then it tightens around their neck and chokes them to death. And it can take up to four or five hours, sometimes a couple oh my days. God. And so they'll have these and they do what's called snare saturation. So they, they'll saturate a site and put 30 or 40 snares all around. And they catch all sorts of things, grizzly bears and moose and caribou sometimes. And so it's just a like a totally archaic. Oh it's like the Middle Ages. 
it's just like kill everything you can. And then there's the, you know, for, for shooting, for instance, in Alberta, uh, the province that I live in right now, you can shoot wolves 10 months of the year. Um, so you can, and if you own private land, you can shoot them anytime without a license even. Um, so it, it's just some astonishing stuff. And then we've got, it's the poisoning program that's going on is actually funded by the government. Um, so it's, there's just some astonishing stuff that makes you go, okay, wait a second. And what's, what's the point on? of the, the calling is strictly for the elk or caribou population? Or caribou is there, populations, there other... but there have been, but there have been calls in the past, uh, to increase bighorn sheep populations So the hunters can hunt more. There's, I mean, there's just right now, all the wildlife management in Canada and, and in the U S for the, for that matter, uh, mostly centric around being, um, Push towards wildlife being a resource that hunters or trappers can use. And that's who has the biggest voice at the table uh, for wildlife management. In fact, the majority of wildlife managers are hunters or trappers throughout North America. Right. So you can see where all these decisions are coming from. And we need to start changing that and get other voices at the table. And so this is, wolves are kind of where I'm starting on this, but big cats is going to be the other one. So cougars, lynx, and bobcat which also run the same thing. They have all these people out there trying to snare them. They have people hunting them with hounds. So there'll be hunters what? that drive up and down on these logging roads, cross a fresh set of cougar tracks or mountain lion tracks, and they'll pull over, let their hounds out. The hounds have GPS collars on them, chase the cougar till it goes up in a tree. Then they use the GPS and they hike into it and shoot the cougar out of the tree. That's it's just, the trophy hunting. Yeah, it's just such bullshit. Like that, that, yeah. like that trophy thing, that guy who like laid a carcass out next to a tree, waited for the lion to come and then shoot it. So it's like, there's yeah. no, like not saying that it would have been cool the other way either, but it's like, if you're using GPS and collared trackers to find this cougar. Like and that is so different than hunting to put food on the table. I mean, if you've got enough money to buy GPS collars and have a truck carrying your dogs and so on and so on and so on, don't try and tell me you're eating a cougar. That's yeah. just total bullshit. And how many cougar? How many cougars are there? I'd imagine the the big cats well, are struggling a lot more. You know? It know, doesn't matter, have, but I mean, it doesn't matter. But no, there are certain areas where cougars still do quite well um, uh, throughout Canada and throughout the U.S. But you look at a state like California, which was the first place in North America to ban cougar hunting, and the state isn't overrun by cougars. In fact, L.A. has you know this remarkable thing going on where you've got cougars living right in the city and right on the edge of the city. And you've managed to, to learn how to coexist with them. It's still learning. You know, it's still a learning process, still mistakes being made. But I want to see way more of that happening in Canada and in other parts of the U.S. where it's not just kill, kill, kill for the sake right. of killing predator. It's actually learning to coexist with these big predators and learning to appreciate them for, for what they really are, the value they bring. And it, it looks like in L.A. too, it looks like that project is probably going to go through where they're building essentially a massive bridge across the 101 because of the, yeah. they didn't have a way to get across. And so many of those cougars were getting killed by cars. Yeah. And interestingly, where I live uh, in Banff National Park was the first place in North America to start doing those big highway overpasses. So are they successful quite, in general? Yeah, very successful. Everything using them now, wolverines, grizzly bears, cougars, wolves, deer, elk, moose, every, every animal now in the park has used them. Really? Okay, cool. Because yeah. I, I heard it and I was like, what are the chances that thing's going to actually use that? But Yeah, it takes a little while for the animals to get used to it, but you put some vegetation up top and uh, you make it illegal for people to walk on them. And um, yeah, they really do work. It's pretty amazing. Well, I guess a lot of the concern in LA is that um, 
they're so isolated in the Santa Monica mountains that it's like left to inbreeding and, and like causing right. these mutations and stuff like that. Whereas if they yeah. can get around a little bit. Yeah. Hopefully at some point you'll be able to establish some corridors that will connect those populations to other populations that, so that's, that comes back more to the habitat protection uh, or to creating habitat. I think from your story, the, the thing that stands out the most to me is how backwards it is where even if you were like, okay, like we obviously don't want wolves being cold, but if you were, at least like cull them in a humane way, like poisoning them or putting them through wire traps. Like it's so disheartening when you're like, not only do you want to cull them, but you want to cull them in like just a cruel, awful way. Torturous matter. I mean, I don't know how many people out there watching this or listening to this will have seen the pictures from uh, outside Denali, the guy with the AK 47 with 10 dead wolves in front of him. Um, You know, the, there's just no need for that. That's just pure hatred. And that's what we need to really shut down because in my opinion, that just um, takes away the opportunity for the rest of the general public to have that chance of viewing a wild wolf or a wild bird. So some guy can get his rocks off blasting his automatic weapon to kill a bunch of animals all at once. I also don't get the, um, not to just keep harping down this path, but I don't understand the value of actually killing it. Like using that guy, for example, he finds a cougar, sends his GPS dog to go harass the thing until it goes in a tree, which is kind of messed up to begin with. But like if you went over there with this camera, took a picture, was like, check out what I just saw. Like, I don't get how that's much different than like cutting off a head and bringing it back with you. Like it's kind of dumb. It's not different. Yeah. That's, that's what trophy hunting is. And to me, that's one of the most vile acts that we do in nature is, uh, is, and, and we allow it. it you know, allowing people to go out and trophy hunt stuff and shoot stuff just so that they can say they killed something. Um, really help. How big of a man are you just because you shot a grizzly bear from 200 yards away with a high-powered rifle? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to uh, go back to a, a story I heard you tell about the first grizzly bear you ever saw and photographed. And uh, it sounded like that was, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but if there was one defining moment of something that you said really changed your life, at least in the video I saw, that's what you pointed to. Can you tell that story? Yeah, sure. So when I f- uh, finished university, I went uh, to university first in Vancouver and then down in Berkeley in California. And when I finished up there, I moved to, to Banff, Alberta in the Canadian Rockies. And the very first day that I arrived, uh, I went and checked into a little hostel in the town. It's a little mountain town, kind of similar to Vail in Colorado. Okay. Um, so I went and checked into the hostel and the next morning got up and decided I should go look for a job and walked downtown, went into the Parks Canada Visitor Information Center and there's a big job board in there. And I walked up to it and looked at the job board and, and almost immediately was distracted by this big bright sign on my right hand side. And I glanced over and there's big words, bear warning. Went over <laughs> and I read it and it said, there's a grizzly bear been frequenting such and such an area along such and such a road. And so I immediately put off my whole job search thing and raced back <laughs> to the hostel, filled my car with a bunch of new friends, uh, three people from Quebec and a Kiwi from New Zealand. And we all went off looking for our first ever grizzly bear. Oh, and we awesome. drove back and forth on this road for six hours looking for grizzly bears. And finally, right as it was getting dark, um, we had this amazing experience, came around a corner, a couple of cars up ahead pulled off and I go, oh, there might be something up here. And we get up there and get a little closer and we can see on this bank, this beautiful little blonde grizzly bear come walking out and right behind her is this big male and it comes up and they 
play fighting and then they mate right in front of us and we're all really? just sitting there just dead silent wow. just the most incredible thing our first bears ever first grizzly bears ever well a week after that the little female grizzly bear who's a bear called field ended up getting into trouble in one of the campgrounds in the national park and parks canada came in and they trapped her and they moved her about 120 miles north and from that point it took her two days and she walked all the way back again and then got into trouble in another campground. They trapped her again. And this time they moved her almost 400 miles. Wait, north 120 way. miles in two days? Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And then she, second time they moved her about 400 miles north and uh, way, way outside of the national parks into a wilderness area up in northern Alberta. And a month after that, she got into an oil and gas trailer and Fish and Wildlife came and shot and killed her. And... To me, it was, you know, like it was literally six months or six weeks from the day I'd first seen her. And it was the first grizzly and I had all these wonderful memories. And then I started seeing all this stuff happening in the newspaper. You know, first she gets trapped right. then she gets trapped again and then she gets killed. And it was right then and there I knew that I had to work in something related to, to helping these bears, helping educate people. And I didn't know quite what it was at that point yet. I didn't know it was going to be photography, but it was a real life defining uh, moment for me, just kind of realizing that that's what I wanted to do is something to help bears and wolves and all these animals like that in some capacity. Wow. I mean, that's such a, a beautiful and sad story at the same time, but powerful for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. It goes back. Sometimes I draw parallels that don't exist. So tell me if this is dumb, but, uh, when you're talking about some of the polar bears struggling up in the Arctic because they're so territorial and they'd be having to cover these great stretches. I always think it's interesting when we just expect animals to adapt uh, really well to what we're doing around them. When an example like that, where you move a grizzly 120 miles, like if you put me 120 miles from my apartment and I had to look around, I wouldn't know where the hell to go. And in two days, it's like, I don't want to be here. I want to be where I am. And I, or, or where I'm from and they go back using like whatever instinctual senses that we couldn't imagine. So it's always, um, to me, the big conclusion I draw is we, a lot of times we want to, uh, allow wildlife to adapt to us in ways that just clearly aren't possible. Yeah. It's, uh, no, there, there's definitely a parallel there that, uh, we're, we're constantly trying to get wildlife to adapt to us. And sometimes they are able to, you know, there's, a uh, my, my previous book that was called The Pipestone Wolves, The Rise and mm -hmm. Fall of a Wolf Family. And it was about a wolf family that was able to adapt to living inside a national park with a railway, a national highway, uh, 5 million visitors a year. And yet for six years, they did quite well. Uh, and then kind of how their downfall all happened uh, at the hands of humans kind of near the end of it. But, uh, you know, for a large part of the book and the story, it's a success story of of how they were able to adapt and, and, and thrive in this human dominated landscape. Was the fall like an unrelated uh, variable to like what they were dealing with in the rise, if that makes sense? Like if they dealt with the highway and they dealt with the railway, what was the, the introduced variable? The fall, that I think, the fall? Was, was primarily related to the, 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 the two alpha wolves moving out of their prime. Mm. And so that caused them to take chances. That, so one of them ended up dying of old age of starvation, which is a great great thing to have happen the other one ended up getting hit on the highway oh. um out in an area where she barely even used to ever go um so just probably looking far and wide for wildlife that they could you know that was weak enough that they could capture or, you know who knows mm -hmm. but 
but that was the a lot of the pack ended up getting hit on the highway or railway in the end and so that was probably losing those alphas is there's a lot more to the story it's a pretty complicated story but uh so did you spend six years following this pack i spent uh four years photographing them well five years from 2009 to 2013 and then um, made a conscious decision i was working with a, a wolf researcher who wrote the book um, a fellow called gunter block and uh, i made the decision that i i was probably causing more harm out there at one point than I was doing good, that I already had the images I needed to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And so near the end, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on them from humans, from photographers, uh, Uh, photographers and tourists. Just just driving them towards like unnatural behavior because they're like, yeah, like, you know, there's, there was just no point for me to be out there driving around and hiking around every day, still looking for them. when there were so many other people also doing that. Right. And so I just made a conscious decision to stop. And I actually, that's in the book that, you know, that was one of the things we had to weigh. And I decided to stop and Gunter decided to keep going with his research because he still had to tell the final story of what ended up happening to them, but we didn't need it to be in photos. And what was the name of the book again? It's called The Pipestone Wolves. Oh, I'll definitely read that. So, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Have you ever read a book called Grizzly Year? Of course, yes. Yeah. I just finished like probably last <laughs> month. That yeah. is a amazing story for for anybody listening. It's about a Vietnam vet who comes back and understandably is pretty shook from his experiences overseas and just can't really deal with society. So ends up camping and tracking grizzlies for six months out of the year in Yellowstone. But the parallel I was drawing is, and everybody should read that book. It's amazing. But uh, is he was talking about fish and wildlife and how every time this goes back to the your bear field um, that was ultimately killed by the park rangers or u.s fish and wildlife i forget what it was um canadian fish canadian oh sorry canadian fish and wildlife (laughs) yeah um (laughs) it's just default sorry what do you think of the typical protocol of park rangers in canada or the u.s if you have experience there has it seemed to have gotten better since that book because reading the book he had a certain disdain for them because of the fact that if anything went wrong the the first instinct was always to kill um which i can also like it's it's a it's a scary situation if they're around campgrounds too. So it's definitely a, a precarious thing. But do you have a perspective on that or like what protocols are in place currently? Yeah, I think protocols are definitely improving, uh, particularly within the national parks in uh, Canada and the U.S. Uh, I think where things are still um, a little bit set back uh, in time and in, in efforts. Uh, with the protocols still being kind of based in similar to how they were in the 1970s, 1980s, is as you step out into areas more managed by state and province. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you get into wildlife managers that are still very closely tied to the hunting trapping industry. Um, so we see it a lot in British Columbia and Alberta. Uh, and I also see it a lot in Wyoming and Montana where, you know, a bear isn't necessarily given three strikes. If it goes in and kills a cow or has an encounter with a person, um, there are some managers that just go in and remove them right away. It's just right. you know, a kill protocol right off the bat. That is changing, though. I do see some progress being made. And now with the advent of social media, there's there's a lot more pressure. Uh, you know, a lot more of these stories get out. And people say, oh, why didn't you try and do something? And the manager says, well, because we didn't have the resources. Well, then we're going to give you the resources. Right. So now you don't have that excuse anymore. So definitely, I definitely see change afoot there. Um, and I think just 
how wildlife is managed overall out inside and outside of parks, I think is slowly starting to turn um, away from this hunter-centric model uh, to where a lot of the funding for conservation is coming from non-hunters now. And so they want to say in how the wildlife's managed. And I uh, think that you know, crowdsourcing is such an awesome way that we're able to do that now in the sense that it's always like, it's the same thing with like Kickstarter and somebody who is always like, I have the best idea for a business, but if only I could raise the money to create the product, I could do it. It's <laughs> not like, well, you don't have that excuse anymore. Like yeah, create, the, create the product, throw it up on Kickstarter and see if somebody likes it. I think the same thing goes for conservation where it's like, if there's a project or if there's something that needs uh, needs resources, you can ask the 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 general population yeah. and, and get that kind of input, which I think is a, and resources, which I think is a beautiful thing because you don't get that excuse of uh, you get like 12 people in the room and eight of them are from the hunting hunting groups. And they're like, well, nobody would like this. Well, let's find out if people would like it, you know? <laughs> I had a I had a similar first experience seeing bears as you with fields where I last April or May I was in Grand Teton and then Yellowstone and I had spent I think we spent 5 days total trying to we were driving around Grand Teton and then we were driving around Yellowstone which we were on a road trip so like it definitely wasn't the ideal way to do it like but I <laughs> we, we wanted to cover as much ground as we could to make sure we saw them and after 4 or 5 days looking we just didn't see any and it was like really sad but it was still like a beautiful trip but we were staying in Gardner Montana which is like an old yep. mining town a gorgeous town it was so fun on this ranch and we had a two-hour drive to Bozeman to pick up one of my buddies at the airport at one and like la the last night we were exhausted from driving around like for 12 hours a day trying to find these animals and my buddy turned to me. He's like, I think we should go back in. And I was like, all right, all right. Like we would have to go at like four in the morning. He's like, yeah, I know. So we ended up driving two hours into the Lamar Valley, which is completely in the opposite direction of Bozeman. So I spent six hours on the road that entire day um, to get, to then go back to Bozeman, but ended up seeing the cars pulled over on the side of the road and be like, oh shit, this is it. And just happened to see, we saw three grizzlies in the Lamar Valley nice. and it was like, one, I mean, it was literally why we did the road trip. So I was really happy I did it, but um, it was beautiful. But my only takeaway was these are awesome. And I wish there weren't all these people. And I wish I wasn't on a road. So I hear in that great bear rainforest, that's uh, that's going to be my next one, I think. Next on the list, yeah. Speaking of which, can you talk a little bit about your trips and, and kind of like how, how the wildlife guiding goes and the photography guiding goes, if anybody would be interested, if that was a possibility for them? Um in your work. Yeah, so I, um, back in 2009, uh, decided to, I've, I've always enjoyed because of my Parks Canada past, I've always enjoyed um, guiding people and, and spending time with other photographers, not so much on my own projects, but to just go on little trips and things like that. Um, so I started uh, running trips, uh, basically photo tours where people would come with me to see spirit bears and photograph them and know that if they're going to come for a week-long trip with me, it is just all photography all the time, dawn to dusk. There's good food, good company, uh, but you know it's just a photo-centric group um, and not a not an aggressive group style. Like some of the some of the U.S. photo tours end up being pretty aggressive and they'll bait owls to get the shot and so on. Right. My tours are much more of a, a laid-back, we'll go out, you know, it's hardcore in the sense that we're dawn to dusk, but 
we'll go and we'll just sit patiently and, and wait for things to develop. And, you know, I take you to pretty amazing spots. So do uh, four different grizzly bear tours in a year. I do a spear bear one. I do an orca whale one with sea otters. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, which is a super cool one. Uh, sometimes do a caribou one. Um, sometimes do a couple to the Arctic. So all sorts of different trips. And you just watch my website. I've got a specific tour website called canwildphototours.com, which is short for Canadian Wildlife Photography Tours.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so canwildphototours.com. And then anyone wants to go check it out. Uh, I will warn everyone, though, that they, they sell out uh, pretty quickly. So usually I announce the dates in late fall and the next day everything's sold out. So, really? Wow. That's yeah. a good problem to have. Get, get your name in on the list if there's anything anybody wants. When to you were saying I'm now in a comfortable position where I can focus more on conservation, <laughs> we now know why. I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I generally do six or seven trips a year. And then I, I also do two workshops each year where I take people to Jasper National Park, um, which is kind of like a mini Yellowstone, but without all the people. Um, oh, so cool. I take them there in like a November, October, November, where it's kind of close to freezing for the most part, like temperature wise. But uh, we get bighorn sheep, elk, what sometimes it bears, in? sometimes wolves. What's that? It's in Montana? Uh, no, it's in Alberta. Um, oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. so, yeah. So people would fly into Calgary, Edmonton, and then you come for a five-day workshop with me and just teach you all about finding wildlife and photographing it. And, Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, I'll link everything in the show notes, but... Um, Obviously, people can find you on Instagram and Facebook. Um, yeah. I'll link the website. Uh, can you give a quick, like, maybe like brief, like what books you have and what, like, which one people might be most interested in reading? Because I know you have, what is it, like six or seven at this point in time? Yeah. yeah so I've got uh, seven different books that I've done, uh, ranging from a little wildlife guidebook that I did back in 1997 to kind of my five main books. I've got three books that are about the Canadian Rockies um, that are available on Amazon or off of my website. Uh, then I've got the Pipestone Wolves book, which came out last year, uh, which has done quite well. And it's a big hardcover, 224-page uh, coffee table book with lots of stories. Wow. And then the one that I just did in November uh, is called Tall Tales, Long Lenses, My Adventures in Photography. And it's a celebration of the first 20 years of my career. So you'll You'll read stories like that of field or about spirit bears, there's grizzly bears, there's wolves, all kinds of different stories in it wow. from all across Canada uh, and the Arctic. And uh, that one's done, done really quite well so far. And uh, it's got, I did three different versions of it. I did a regular one that you can buy on Amazon or off my website. And then I also did a, a limited edition, which is a, a special version of just 250. And then I did a special collector's edition, which is just 50 of existence of in the world and uh, they they include kind of some cool things like i had a coin done by the royal canadian mint oh cool uh, they include a couple of limited edition prints and so it's, it's a whole sort of package you get for that yeah i saw yeah. online i was debating between the, the regular and the limited and i figured i'd get yeah. the full explanation before i pulled the trigger yeah. on one yeah so they're uh yeah they're all pretty cool and uh, i think people so far the response has been just fantastic to uh to the stories and the photos inside it. All right. So everybody buy a book um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or go on a tour, even more, more of a cool experience. So I <laughs> wanted to part with one last question, which is uh, it, kind of an open-ended one, which is why should people care about wildlife? And I think with, with more 
people going and living in cities, you get more and more disconnected from what's going on and you hear about conservation issues, but with everything else going on in the world, why should people care? I think caring about wildlife comes down to caring about ourselves Um, because, you know, if we just keep going the route that we're going where uh, everything is about me, 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 and uh, everything about is, is about us living in our cities and living in our, I I live in a nice home like many people do. And uh, if we keep, down this path where we're not connecting with nature we're just going to eventually end up where we're really the only thing left on this earth and eventually we might there might be nothing left on this earth and so i think caring about wildlife and about what happens out in nature is really speaking in a bigger picture that we care about ourselves and we care about our children that are going to come after us and their children and so on we're going to leave them something that is actually an experience more than just sitting in a room playing on a playstation you know to get out in nature and watch a wolf or a bear or or even just something as simple as a squirrel is really something that i think can change a person's life um, and really have them appreciate more of what's around us and and what helps form the human experience Um, to me that's so much about who i am and about who my friends are and my family is and you know, that we, we can share this natural experience. I live in this beautiful place with mountains all around and I can literally go half a mile up behind my house here and there's cougars, wolves, grizzly bears, uh, the full range oh, of that's animals, the dream. which is just incredible to me. Um, oh, so that's I, wild. I think that, yeah, I think, you know, just start small, go to, go to a park, um, you know, go take that trip to Yellowstone like you did, go do a road trip and just get out there and sit, you know, doesn't matter if you're sharing it with a couple hundred people, you're going to be out there in nature and get to see some stuff that then will just pique that interest. And just about everybody, I think, does have that interest inside of them um, to, to see cool stuff out in nature. And then once you see it once, you want more of it. Yeah. I also think it's therapeutic too. I, I oh, think, totally. I mean, totally. we have not evolved to live in these types of cities and I am <laughs> finding myself with anxiety all the time that I don't know yeah. where it's coming from and usually stepping out is is a pretty good i mean that's why i call this escape the zoo that's really the entire kind of process i said it was the last question but i have one more follow-up to that which is for folks who are following you on instagram on exposed on youtube um on facebook maybe on a new tv series what's the next five years looking like and what are you trying to accomplish at least two more books i've got a a wolf project that has come to a finish now that i just have to write and uh, potentially do a short documentary about it as well for exposed, um, exposed will be focusing very heavily. Uh, the web series very heavily on conservation-themed issues moving forward. We've got a set of uh, ten different uh, episodes that we're going to be covering that are all focused on conservation. So we're moving away a little bit from the adventure side of things, although we'll still have a bit of that in every event, every uh, right. episode. Cool. Can't get that out of there altogether. Got to be out there looking for stuff. Right. Um, and then. Uh, embarking on uh, potentially on a couple of tv experiences so people may be seeing me on the big screen uh, all right moving forward if all goes well uh, uh preaching to the choir and hopefully preaching to some new converts about just how valuable nature is and some of the issues that we're dealing with right now very cool well i'm looking forward to watching i'm sure other people are too and thank you so much again for taking the time i look forward to staying in touch and watching your journey as it continues and to everybody thank you for listening stay wild Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, 
books, how you can support, etc. Please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.